0: You're listening to the Manolo Kesson is Explainer Podcast. It's May 5th, Thursday, 2022, a few days before Election Day. After a long hiatus, this podcast is back and we're having a conversation with a journalist from the Czech Republic. His name is Pavel Vondra and he happens to be an old friend. He's an editor at a podcast in Prague and has been a journalist since 1994. And he spent nearly two decades in public service media before joining the outfit that he's now with, and he'll talk about that in a while. Now, he is currently in the Philippines for the 2022 elections, and this will be the fourth Philippine election that he's observing at close hand. By the way, he's written the first book in the Czech language about the Philippines. So here's our conversation, which we recorded earlier today. Our conversation begins with my asking him to tell the story about how he came to know about the Philippines and how he ended up visiting the first time.
1: Oh, that's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Uh, the truth of the matter is, the you know, it, it was sort of an accidental encounter uh, years ago when I was. 19 and I was hitchhiking with a group of friends in uh, Alaska, of all the places, and, and we met this uh, very friendly Filipino priest uh, who obviously was uh, working in Alaska, sort of uh, helping them tackle the shortage of Catholic priests there. <laughs> he was very friendly indeed, uh, and we were very short of money, of course, uh, and he, he let us stay in his... Uh, um, in his place, in his church, for a few days, it was driving us around extremely friendly. Um, and then we just uh, exchanged uh, letters, you know, that's uh, back then in, uh, we're talking about mid-90s. That's what people did. They were sending posts. And people still wrote letters. <laughs> yeah, remember that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know when's the last time I sent any. Uh, well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna skip. I'm gonna fast forward. But the, so he was the first living Filipino I've met. Probably also first time I've really seriously heard about the Philippines because I was asking him about the place of his birth. And at that time I was starting as a journalist in a news agency back in Prague and uh, in a foreign news section. So every now and then, you know, news from the Philippines would jump up, and uh, usually it was the the kind of you know violent thing, I don't know, MPA attack, or uh, I don't know, you you know, how how bad press the Philippines gets, you only hear about it for the wrong reasons. Yep, which was also mid 90s. So, of course, we also started emailing, which was a lot faster than just sending each other postcards and letters. And well, that's how I became, uh, that's how I I got to have a relatively frequent contact with uh, person from the Philippines although he was living in Alaska and then uh, he suggested I visit the Philippines because that was what he was also about to do in the year 2000 when his family was supposed to have a big reunion and uh, he was from 10 siblings which was quite normal as I understand in (laughs) in his generation (laughs) so uh, I said yes that sounds exciting and that's how I first visit to the Philippines in the year 2000. Unfortunately, that friend of mine, Don Balkin is his name, uh, passed away later that year, because at that point, he was already diagnosed with uh, a, a liver cancer. Uh, so there was no chance of saving him. But uh, thanks to him, I visited the Philippines that year, and already he was quite sickly. So I was traveling on my own, around the country. And I just loved it. Uh, I was you know, 24, so I haven't seen much of the world at that point, and uh, this was so different from you know my reality of a landlocked country in the middle of Europe. Uh, so, you know, ocean boats, ships, uh, coconut palms, you, you name it, uh, <laughs> and also Jose Rizal, because uh, I bought that book in, in a national bookstore. I heard about the unusual friendship of Ferdinand Blumentritt and Jose Rizal uh, before I visited the Philippines. I thought it was a uh, story. And then uh, I read Rizal's books, which I very much liked, I thought they were, I still think they are very, um, very modern, um, and very funny, you know, uh, excellent uh, point of entry to Filipino psyche, I think. So I just knew that there's more to this country than, than meets the eye. And also, what I saw, I, I liked. And as, as I was still Relatively early in my journalist career, I, I just decided, well, this country is worth exploring more. And then um, I started working for the BBC uh, in Prague for the World Service. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a chance to, to follow what was happening in the Philippines. That was the time of uh, Etsados
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and quite exciting times. Uh, I remember I interviewed Maneviliar when he was visiting Prague. Uh, and that was soon after uh, he sort of single handedly sent that impeachment complaint to the Senate as a House Speaker, I don't know if I remember correctly. Uh, and that was quite interesting. I mean, knowing that I interviewed a person who is now the, the richest person in the Philippines. <laughs>
0: uh, well, and fast he, forward, and, and you're yeah. now here, and this is um, w- what number of uh philippine elections that you you've been able to to see a little bit of uh, firsthand
1: yeah it's my fourth election there there were one midterm elections but uh proud to say those are third presidential elections in vote that i uh that i have a chance to witness here in the year 2010 uh, i was here for almost four months so i could watch the entire election uh, the entire campaign cycle uh when Pinoy. Getting his campaign. That was quite uh, something.
0: Uh, well, was... We'll, well, we'll get to that a little later. But th- okay. let me zero in on something that um, most Filipinos aren't aware of, which is um, the, the experience of people power that uh, both our countries um, oh. have in common. Um, and there's a term for it in the particular experience of, of uh, what was then um, Czechoslovakia, I guess, which is um, Velvet Revolution.
1: That's right. Yes, that's what we call it. Uh, Sametová Revolution or that Revolution, as you say. Well, yeah, I, I as you say, I, I thought those two points in our respective histories are something that we have in common. I know quite a lot of Filipinos believe that ETSA inspired the, the whole wave of revolutions in that former Eastern Bloc, uh, which, which happened in Czechoslovakia and you know, other countries. Uh, The Eastern Bloc. Well, when I was asking some people who who might have known something about it in Prague, uh, like uh, a Catholic priest and one of the leaders of the opposition movement in November 1999, Václav Mali, who is now a bishop, uh, he said, Well, to be honest, we we, we haven't heard much from the Philippines in 86 yet. There were news accounts of Marcos' dictatorship. Mm -hmm toppled, but not like we really took heart from what was happening. And uh, so I think people might have heard, but remember you know, that's, we're talking about 1986, there was a uh, uh, there was uh, state of the control press.
0: of everything. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I also uh, I, I then went into the archives and had the communist newspapers brought to me from February 1986 and there were very scant reports and of course Very uh, biased. I mean, they were critical of Marcos because he was perceived as, you know, the rightist, revanchist, Mm -hmm. uh, fighting communists. But but that was not like, you know, the communist press in the Czechoslovakia was celebrating the people power. Uh, They were very much afraid of people power, which, and they were rightly so, because that's really what happened in November 1989. Uh, I mean, people, you know, took to the streets, Uh, not like, uh, you know, a coup attempt which was what was happening in the Philippines, but uh, more like uh, a genuine um, uh, clamor for the communist regime to end. Um, the the numbers were so huge, so unexpectedly huge, because the opposition activities were, you know, they were always a handful of people. Uh, you know, A few dissidents, I think, I hazard to say, they were maybe 200 or 300 people who were active in, in the opposition work, but of course, Chief among them, Uh, but you know it's not like people were really actively working against the dictatorship. Unlike, I think, here after uh, after Ninoy was killed, you know, that the whole whole movement and yeah, people in the streets, parliament of the streets, no, nothing like that in in Czechoslovakia. It was very spontaneous, very quick, and very unexpected. And I think. uh, Communist regime also when they saw what was happening in, in, in other parts of the world, especially East Germany, where the wall came down, uh, they just basically uh, gave up. They handed out the power there was, uh, and it was bloodless, just like here. So, yeah. I'm
0: but that's that's the that's the surprising thing. But tell me, um, why the specific term "velvet uh, revolution"?
1: I think it was. I, I don't remember who suggested that term at first, but it. It caught on, uh, it, well, because velvet, uh, as in uh, I think velvet glove, or mm-hmm. you know, that, that it was very peaceful, smooth, uh, bloodless. So I think that the velvet means really that it was uh, it, it was not violent. It was
0: i've been i've been reviewing the the literature since then and and what seems to be if if there wasn't an actual feeling or 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 consciousness of affinity what's very interesting however is that the the experience of the checks um since in many ways uh, i think would strike a chord among filipinos um in terms of um the the questions it's raised in uh, um, among the people and how the democracy has turned out in the decades since. Um, what, can, can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah I mean I think that's uh, that's a very good observation. I think uh, what was uh, interesting is I think back in November 1989 that there definitely was you know in the slogans that were chanted in uh, unison by people were you know back to Europe. Uh, you know, the, the uh, free elections, you know, democracy, um, and, but those might have been slogans I think that meant a lot to people who were, uh, you know, who were keen in, in, or who took active part in, in the politics, uh, or in the opposition activities, but I think people in general had, very vague idea what democracy is. I mean, we're talking about forty years of dictatorship. So, few generations, including my own, were born into dictatorship. We had no notion of what the free elections mean. At that point, I was thirteen, so uh, it would still be five years before I could vote. Uh, but I think the, the understanding was this is good. Like we, we have to, uh, you know, we have to move on to the new phase. We want to be deciding for ourselves. And then I think, uh, you know, when that really happened, when people decided that it's them who have to make the choices, and they only have themselves to blame for failures, I think there was a sort of a backlash. I think the realization that democracy will just not uh, automatically mean prosperity. For
0: how how long was it before the, the you you felt that there was this backlash?
1: Uh, I think perhaps. Uh, could have been something like seven years because that's when initially uh, the the liberal uh, governments that were all about you know market economy and, and making necessary changes privatizations and basically just dismantling the the centrally planned economy and making it work on the market principles you know there was little opposition to that i think people understood well this is what needs to be done i mean we want to live like people in Germany do uh, things like that. And there was very little, uh, I think, informed opposition suggesting that maybe there are other ways to uh, to restructure economy. But when it finally hit the people that, you know, there may, maybe the, the living standards were not uh, rising uh, at the past, at the base that they were imagining, that we're never gonna catch up with Germany, for example, those were mid '90s. Uh, specifically, 1996 was the elections when um, when the Social Democracy uh, made a bigger increase in numbers, uh, and when their criticism of the market economy was beginning to be felt. And at the same time, all the time that we're talking since the, the first three elections in 1990, uh, there was the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, that never even renamed themselves, that never apologized for the sins done, uh, basically always trying trying to downplay the criticism. Uh, I think they only briefly said that uh, some things that were done in the past were bad, but, but really, that's just like one statement back in 1990. And then you know they were back at their game, you know saying, we're here for everyone and we want a classless society, things like that. So basically, they were never forced to atone for their sins. And, and yet they were still in the parliament because, of course, it was the single biggest party in Czechoslovakia. And even if people were leaving it by droves, they, they still maintained you know, uh, a, a, a big membership. So I think the, in the first elections, and, uh, and I'm not sure, you know, I just don't, don't quote me on that, <laughs> but they, they, I think they probably got something like 10%. And then usually they were scoring around that uh, around that um, result once it was even 14%. So, I mean, they, they were a sizable opposition party, but nobody would really touch them. Nobody would want to form a coalition with them. They were, you know, a pariah in the, on the political scene. But they were represented all the time in the parliament. And... Uh, uh, there came a time when they were even silently supporting a government. There was a sort of a, even a written agreement, I believe. And we're talking about a recent...
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no. So so I've, I found it interesting that um, you were mentioning a seven-year period when, uh, after which people sort of um, started to have questions about the 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 democracy that had been established. And that's about the same period of time uh, from the transition from Koryakino Aquino and FVR to to Estrada, and um, at the same time, the the percentage that continued voting for the Communist Party reminds me of um, consistent polling in the Philippines that had a consistent about 10% of the electorate that still wanted a dictatorship during this period. So it's a striking parallel to me, but let me ask you, um, has did in in the Czech Republic did they also experience a period of um of going through populism and um, you know the sort of direct confrontation that has with with you know sort of the democratic consensus?
1: Absolutely, yeah, we did. Uh, I and mean, in fact, we're I think still uh, still facing that. Although I think we're out of the woods. Uh, knock on wood. <laughs> Uh, I think the first brush with populism uh, was the uh, presidential elections in the year 2013, uh, when President Zeman uh, mounted uh, what was really a populist campaign. And um, he won I think on strength of uh, throwing some uh, I think uh, throwing some very questionable um, criticism uh, towards his opponent. Uh, basically you, you could, I mean it was a disinformation it was completely playing on fears against the, the, the so-called German revanchism, the you know something as old as you know the World War II. And the expulsion of Germans uh, from the Czechoslovakia after the World War II, this myth that the Germans will want to go back and they will want to reclaim their property was still alive in the year two thousand thirteen. Uh, the
0: the so called Sudeten Germans.
1: Exactly, exactly. And his opponent was uh, Karol Schwarzenberg, uh, you know, a, a member of Czech nobility that was uh, exiled uh, during the communist period and you know, a seon of a uh, Czech uh, noble family with, uh, you know, but German speaking, and uh, with roots in Austria as well, uh, which of course, Austria was part of the the German Empire, Mm. uh, but, you know, there's nothing to suggest that he would even dream about, you know, returning property to Germans. I mean, that's impossible even legally. And the German side said, no less. Uh, but still, you know, this, uh, this irrational uh, fear of, of this revanchism happening was enough to sway the vote in, uh, in Mr. Zeman's favor. And it has to be said, he's a very intelligent person. He must have known that this is just, a, uh, you know, this is just nonsensical. But uh, I think probably somebody suggested or maybe he himself just came up with this like saying this will hit uh, my opponent hard. And it did because of course uh, you know he he didn't stoop low on Mr. Schwarzenberg to you know to play on that same level. And therefore I think uh, you know he lost. And so that was one brush with populism. But uh, we're uh, we're a parliamentary uh, republic. So president only has... uh,
0: Ceremonial, yeah,
1: that's right, yeah. Ceremonial role. Although Mr. Zeman was able to sort of bend constitution and and uh, usurp himself some powers that uh, are not specifically in the constitution, but constitution is vague, and it really it, it sort of counts on the president to play by the rules, uh, even if it's not specifically written what he can do and can, cannot do. So he was always um, clashing with the government, and, and you know. Uh, really usurping himself some powers. Uh, but the the, uh, the populism also penetrated the, the parliamentary politics. And then we had uh, Mr. Babish, uh, one of the richest uh, businessmen in the Czech Republic, uh, also happens to be a former, uh, a former collaborator with the communist secret police. Uh, uh, and he was uh, he brought what was not known until that point like a very sleek marketing uh, billboards uh, messaging that was uh, that was always having a high impact uh, and no parties could actually keep up uh, pace with him in this regard like he, his his marketing was great he, he employed some you know some some, some very skilled people from marketing segment and he was just able to, do, to, to to mount these campaigns that were you know they never discussed political programs it was all about slogans like uh, yes uh life will be better mm. that was his that was and that's it you know he, he didn't even have to explain how and why and, and the billboards were everywhere you know he had so much money that he could throw it in the air and then when he was ruling when he won the elections again
0: so you have a new style of of campaigning, uh, the use of new technologies and and tricks. Yep. Um, a candidate with a with a past associated with with a dis, with a discredited regime. Yep. Uh, did this lead to any sort of soul searching or hand wringing or questioning of what had happened to Czech democracy to reach this point?
1: Absolutely, of course. You know the newspapers, the media, they were you know full of soul searching, um, but. Uh, Basically, they came with no answers. I mean, obviously, the the fact that he was uh, a secret uh, police agent uh, uh, couldn't hurt him anymore. I think sociologists agreed. you know, that's a long time ago. People just, uh, you know, they don't care about the history as much anymore. Of course, there was also a new generation of people interesting well let enough, me um,
0: let me interrupt you there um this this zeroes in on the question how have how was czech society in teaching uh and 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 keeping alive the lessons of of um it, it's it's uh, communist past and the freedom movement
1: i, I think uh, the the czech educational system is uh, doing a decent job in that regard it's definitely part of history lessons I mean, it can be problematic sometimes because, you know, they teach it chronologically or used to. So they would begin in, you know, ancient times. And then, of course, as you approach the modern history, you're already running short of time. So maybe that, that used to be a problem. But I think there has been some restructuralization of the, the school programs. So And there's just definitely a stress on the modern history. Uh, and there are also new programs with, uh, with the help of Civil society. That, for example, there are debates and screenings as part of the education. You know, uh, there are writing contests and things like that. So I think,
0: and and yet the sociologist said that uh, this was all too long ago to really matter to the electorate.
1: It is true, but I, I think the the silver lining is that in the last elections, uh, Mr. Babish and his own party were. Routed, and as the, the I think as the data showed, it was uh, to big part thanks to the young people who don't who, who were not living in communism, so they just had enough of this uh, populist uh, politics. I mean, he was also, you know, he, he used, for example, the um, the the issue of immigration during the so-called migration crisis in two thousand fifteen when. You know, millions of refugees from Syria were coming to Europe. There was a big fear of them flooding, you know, uh, Europe. And since they were mostly Muslims, then the, the populace, you know, began talking about the need to protect Christianity against expanding Islam and things like that. And in Czech Republic, it was a huge issue, despite the fact that there were maybe 20 refugees. <laughs> I mean, they all went to Germany. They didn't care about Czech Republic. But that was a big issue that year. And I think Mr. Babish was... He completely used that issue to um, sort of perpetuate himself in power. But I think it's the young people who got sick of this sort of messaging and of the sleek marketing. And, you know, they started making fun of him also on the social media. So there was a big backlash. And I think it's, it's largely thanks to the young people that he was beaten in the last election. So, you know, uh, Never give up, I think. It doesn't mean that, <laughs> that gives do. that gives
0: us hope. Um, but <laughs> tell me so. then, okay, so we've we've been we've been discussing the, this very interesting parallels in a sense between your country's experience and ours. But let me then let me ask you as a person who's who's uh uh you know been coming to the Philippines has has um Looked at our our society and politics, I think a little more than than most people from your part of the world. Um, what what were your impressions coming into uh, this current visit? Because you're here in the Philippines now, and you will be here for uh, past election day. Um, and and where how you know how does this compare to the previous elections? The public mood, the people you've talked to. Um, gi- give us give us your your Czech perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, effective uh, also might be influenced by the fact that I wrote a book on the history of the Philippines, the first in Czech language that's now available at Marcus' speakership. Uh, so, you know, I, I went through, I read many books, uh, I visited the Bantayok ng Mga Bayani. So that's something that, of course, uh, I think i probably know more about than an average Filipino might know. So, I think initially when I was still in, in, in Prague and just uh, you know, watching the surveys coming out uh, since last October, and then especially around the turn of the year, I have to say I was a bit shocked to see uh, Marcus's, uh numbers rising that high and you know, reaching as high as 50% or almost 60%. Uh, knowing full well that uh, we're talking about a man who never admitted uh, anything wrong with the dictatorship, I mean, uh, downplaying it, I mean, even calling it the golden age of the Philippines. I mean, that's sort of a, you know, what a nerve, I'd say. So... uh, you know, that's not for me to, to tell Filipinos who to vote for, but I just thought it was interesting that uh, with the uh, with the living memory still very much around, uh, although the, of course the demographics is changing, and as we know, the latest numbers that I just saw, the, the number of voters below the age of 41, meaning those who have very minimum or no experience of uh, martial law, is actually a majority. Uh, Despite that, I thought, you know, you still have people who remember, who, who publish books, who tell, uh, you know, their, their campaigns, you know, like never again. And, uh, so I have to say, I, I really was surprised. But then I know, I mean, from also reading your columns, I mean, Manolo, you're, you're, you're uh, one of the explainers to me of uh, <laughs> the reality in the Philippines. So uh, your input has to be valued there, too. But I know from what, what you're writing that the, the Marcos vote never disappeared. It was always there. It was just, I think, a matter of finding a strong ally, uh, and that's something that he obviously managed—or not maybe he, he, but somebody else. But anyway, the 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 alliance or uh, or the axis of evil, as the critics call it, of uh, mm-hmm. Duterte and Marcos is obviously. Uh, looks to be a winning combination if you if you are to trust the surveys uh, but can you trust the surveys I mean I don't know there's no this big debate about social data being maybe a more relevant uh, meter metrics to look at and uh, well I, I mean and I, if I was just to talk about my experience I mean from what I see when I uh, walk through to, mm-hmm. to go to places uh, you know uh, to the less privileged communities all around Metro Manila, and so um, so what I see is the the level of civic engagement. I think uh, is much higher uh, when it when when you talk about the Kakampings, the the pink, uh, the Leni Robredo and Kiko Pamiliin supporters. I mean, they really do engage. They're, they're seen. They're they're doing something. Whereas the Bongo Marcos, well. You hear that name when you ask people. I, I ask tricycle drivers, I ask, you know, and yeah, of course that name comes uh, up a lot. I would say probably, more, well, definitely more than Lenny's name, but maybe okay. that's the nature of the communities where I go and people where I ask. Some people I don't have to ask. I mean, I see them wearing pink. <laughs> that's all I need to know. I mean,
0: so you, um, you do you do notice and observe a, a class divide?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate because also those people, you know, uh, they will tell you that Marcos was the best president we've ever had. And then when you challenge them and say, Well, how do you know? Well, I, I read it in Facebook, I saw this YouTube video of the structures that he built. And I tell him, Well, yeah, but uh, you know, that's, that's not all there is to the story. Have you heard about the you know jailing of the people, torturing, disappearances, uh, um, and human rights violations? Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. This would be their, their usual answer. It's like, you know, it's just my opinion that Bongbong bong Marcos will be a great president. I mean, even just that leap of faith to think mm. that, even if you believe that Marcos was such a great president, then what, what makes you think that bong, bong Marcos, when you look at his track record, which is probably something that those people don't do, but I mean, he doesn't strike me as, you know, uh, as a great leader. I mean... Look at him. I mean, he, he doesn't. But that—that—that that, that... questions from the press, you know. But, but that's probably not something that people from the the groups uh, CDE that we're talking about, like uh, the less privileged, are are um, thinking about. And also, I think we're talking about the decline of media. I mean, let's you know, let's be honest. Uh, we as media, uh, mm-hmm. we've lost, I think, the influence uh, and. Uh, we definitely lost readership. Uh, I mean, when, when we're talking about print, maybe not the online media, but but still, I think uh, social media is the main source of information for people.
0: Well, I mean, the, 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 this 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 brings up the question. I mean, you have been observing um, that the the different divides and the different sort of opinions in different sectors since uh, the Estrada era. What if what sort of changes have you observed if any i mean you've been coming back and you've been talking to there are many people you know now and you've known for for a sustained period of time how have they evolved how has the opinion of different sectors changed what have you observed to bring us to what you are seeing now Mm
1: -hmm. Hmm. i don't know if i have any intelligent answer to that I, I, (laughs) I, i just know that it's you know, changed, but uh, I don't have any data and it would be anecdotal. Uh, but I uh, yeah, well, it, you know, it's driven by technology, definitely. I think, you know, people, of course, uh, I mean, everybody has a mobile phone, but uh, our, our reading habits on, on the phone, I think, you know, it, it tend, tends to be um, short attention span, just looking for headlines. I don't think that we're reading longer texts on mobile phones. They're, they're not really built for that. And of course, people have laptops and computers and uh, they will do it. But uh, that's still a small group of people. I think that that's, uh, that's searching that kind of information. Then we're talking about changes in the media landscape. I mean, I know how, how ABS-CBN was influential, How you know, wherever you went, you, you saw that TV on and usually it was their news. And Now that's gone, I mean, well, at least, uh, you know, uh, not completely, but I think mostly uh, from the uh, the, the so-called free TV, you don't get that. And so I think that's one change. Uh,
0: Well, let let me ask you, in terms of of, uh, in your country, um, has there been a decline in traditional media and and how has this affected, um, you know, the political dynamics in your country?
1: yes i think we're all dealing with a similar situation there's definitely uh, like newspapers going out of business and even though they're you know moving online not everybody has or almost nobody has the, um, the sort of a business formula to make it uh, you know to, to to sustain it so there's there's less and less uh space and opportunities for journalists actually um, to you know to, to do their work uh, it's um, and especially because there's just I think less interest and also in our case I think what was quite important was that mr. Babish, who I was talking about as the former prime Minister he bought into the media market big time you know he, he bought the biggest newspaper uh, one of the biggest radio stations. Uh, so um, he built himself uh, uh, a media empire, and that, and that, uh, although people, I think, uh, began to question the uh, the content of that of those media that belong to his empire. Um,
0: it muddied the waters in a sense. It,
1: absolutely, uh, exactly, and you know, a, a lot of times there would be a demolition job on a politician. Who crossed Mr. Rubbish's path. Uh, there would be expose, you know, uh, materials, uh, headline stories, front page stories about this politician doing this and doing that. Sometimes it was completely made up, but you know, the harm was done. So he was really, he weaponized the media.
0: Mm, uh, that's that's an interesting uh, turn of phrase, weaponizing it. it.
1: Waters or it poisoned the well, because that, you know, then, then people tend to don't trust the media as a whole, even if it's just one rogue element doing this, then I think people have a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, it was printed and it's not true. So how am I to trust the media as a whole?
0: You were also mentioning something, I think, in, in one of our uh conversations recently which i found very interesting which is that i mean you've had long experience in in radio but um you've recently moved to to a new kind of 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 media which is which is more um online and um the difference in that because because they all online models essentially are based on on clicks and and um eyeballs um you were telling me how even the liberty of, of journalists to sort of put forward stories for the sake of stories that that sort of enrich instead of being driven but by what will attract um, clicks has uh, changes the kind of, of uh, sort of the mix of stories that are available to the public could you tell us a bit about this
1: yeah I think you 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 put it well I think that's that's my worry I um, of course, I'm hoping I've only just joined this new uh, this, uh, this website uh, says pra it's called uh, and it's it's a uh, it's part of a large um, technological company that's called Sesnam, which you might think of as a check Google and so to speak I mean it's a competition to Google and uh, that they have their own search engine and their help and their own Email service and, and other online services like uh, weather forecast and you know, whatnot, plenty of and maps and so so lots of a, a lot of very useful stuff. But they also decided that they want to have their own media content and that they're gonna that they're going to uh, you know finance it even if it uh, doesn't really return the money, mm. they, you know, which you know I thought was great. Uh, and they because we it's definitely necessary because aside from the public service media Czech radio and Czech uh, television which is there and it's doing a great job uh, we don't really have that much uh, quality uh, media content elsewhere it's uh, uh, it's fractured there are small operations uh, you know sometimes for only about 10 people uh, and of course you cannot cover that much and then you were mentioning some stories that will not, uh, you know, be, have big potential of attracting clicks, but that that might be very useful in expanding your horizons and enriching you somehow. Well, yeah. I mean, my worry is that these stories that will just not generate big uh, readership will tend to be uh, uh, will tend to disappear because, like, you know. Uh, you're not going to give a person a whole day to work on a story that only a few people will read. Uh, So that's that's the um, economic dogma that I think we're facing. And and, uh, I don't know, we're we're still looking, I think, for business models. I'll I'll have to see. I'll tell you more uh, after (laughs) this company. Uh, Well,
0: well, tell tell me about, I mean, now... now that you're, you're back f- to see what's going on um, what has surprised you the most and um, in terms of what is different about uh, the political situation and what have you found unchanging
1: hmm. I think what surprised me most is that uh, there is a viable candidate who has a uh, No, uh, I mean, who has a limited political experience? And I'm talking about Lenny Robredo because Mm -hmm. you know that before she became vice president, she only had three years in uh, in House of Representatives. But of course, she has a track record as a social activist and uh, social worker. So we have to give her credit for that. And but I think she really proved herself during, uh, especially during COVID period from. What I could observe uh, at a distance, I thought she was doing a tremendous job because uh, I was a bit disheartened by President Duterte's approach. Uh, and I have to say the Czech Republic also uh, you know, has a terrible track record when it comes to COVID. Like the, the, the former government of Mr. Babish, who used to boast that we're best in COVID. And, and then all of a sudden we had 40,000 people dead.
0: Wow, wow. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I think one of the worst ratios because we're a country of only 10 million people. Uh, so you know, it's I, th- I think situation was bad on many fronts, but in the Philippines, I thought it was uh, uh, it, it was really uh, worrying, and and I thought that uh, despite President Duterte having his you know uh, having his uh, weekly talk to the nation, although the <laughs> The scheduling was rather erratic, and I could sometimes it, it would happen, sometimes it wouldn't. And they would postpone it, but it was just vintage Duterte. He would, you know, go on rambling, throw in some jokes, uh, which I thought was very unfortunate. I mean, at a time like that, when you're really looking for information and guidance, you know, you, you, you don't really want to hear jokes, even though his spokesperson was trying, I think, to to say that he wants to raise the spirits of Filipinos in these hard times, I, I don't know. Uh, I just thought that his approach was, I mean, there was much to be improved in his approach, whereas Vice President Robredo, uh, with the limited funds that her office of Vice President had, she, I think, was able to to have a huge impact. Uh, uh, and I think if you use that as a blueprint and upscale it, I think then Philippines might have Dealt with the whole crisis much much better, um,
0: and better yet better. and yet the president uh, uh, remained exceedingly popular, and the and the vice president was relatively unpopular during this period.
1: Which yeah, I mean, you know that's that's surprising to me. I mean the the eighty <clears> percent <throat> remaining support of President Duterte. You know I, I don't know how he's I just saw him the other night in, uh, on, on that uh, pre-election rally in uh, Cainta, when he was the, start at the st- star at the stage, uh, you know, just usual himself. He was introducing the candidates for the Senate, but uh, it was all about him. And of course, <laughs> you know, he's not openly supporting any candidate. Uh, but I thought, well, that's still him. Uh, and obviously he had a good rap- So uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's that's a mystery. I think the whole Duterte presidency. Uh, uh, I think there will be books written about it. I think he's the you know he, he just has that magic touch with the people. You know, is the classic populist. I think, uh, but dangerously so because we, we all know what his track record is when it comes to uh, when it comes to mm. democratic principles and uh, not respecting the powers of. Even speak about the prosecution of certain opposition figures and free media and things like that. Uh, I could go on and on, but uh, well, here he, he's, uh, but his political capital, uh, and I think you wrote it in one of your columns, is uh, you know, is unquestionable. And uh, but what happened is that he couldn't really control it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's what I believe. family. We don't know. Sara Duterte obviously remains popular, and she could very much follow in his footsteps. We'll, we'll, we'll see whether she will be happy with the, well, first of well, all, we don't know who's going to win. But uh, if she's
0: that, so that, that brings happy. us to the, to the sort of, I guess, the, the closing part of this thing, because I'd like to talk to you after the elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and compare notes but going into election day which is which is just in a few days it's going to be on Monday right now this is Thursday when we're recording this um, what will you be looking for or looking at as an observer
1: well uh, as we already uh, the result is despite the, the huge margin that the surveys seem to be bearing out uh, there's still this intrigue, uh, because the social data are telling us a different story. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a story that I can see with my own eyes when I uh, walk through the streets of Manila and see the you know, see the activity of Dika companies and uh, see the size of the crowds. Uh, uh, so, of course, I will be looking for uh, the result. <laughs> I want to know if, uh, if the surveys are so much off that we will have to start thinking all over about how we measure the, uh, the level of satisfaction with politicians or even their support. Whether now with this technology it, giving us countless uh, data from the use of you know, mobile phones, etc., whether that's something where the, the whole survey industry will be heading. I think it's already happening, and we just have to know which of the two uh, mirrors the reality method. Uh, I think at this point, I'm, I'm really, uh, even if it looks like a foregone conclusion, uh, I will just uh, wait until the actual uh, counting of the vote is done, and then we'll be all much, much smarter, I think.
0: <laughs> okay, well, in the hope that we will be much smarter, I'll, I'll I look forward to our part two of this after election day. Thanks for, for this conversation, Pavel. And and, and um, I hope we'll be able to to also discuss some points um, we only briefly touched on now um, in our second round.
1: Yeah, I'll be very happy to do so. Thank you for inviting
0: me. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Manolo Quezon is the Explainer podcast. You can catch us on Anchor, on Spotify, on Apple, and other places where you can find fine podcasts. Thanks for listening.